justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to justify today's episode is titled faith not law it's on the sabri mala judgment in the supreme court which was reviewed recently we'll be joined in a bit by a very special guest salman khurshid former law minister and senior advocate in the supreme court but before he joins us here's our roundup Chief Justice Gogoi's last week was so busy that we are still playing catch up on roundup this week. So first to the tribunal's judgment, Roger Matthew versus South Indian Bank. The question before the court in the tribunal's case was whether section 183 and 184 of the Finance Act 2017 which delegated the powers relating to appointment, qualifications, terms and conditions, salary, removal of tribunal members to the rules is valid or not several other interesting questions which arose including whether the certification of a bill as a money bill by the speaker under article 1103 is reviewable or not you'd remember that the finance act 2017 was a money bill and in that money bill there were provisions relating to tribunal members the court held in this case that the sections themselves are valid they said that the sections themselves do not delegate what is an essential legislative function the policy and guideline which is the essential legislative function is individual and institutional independence i think that's deeply flawed because each of the aspects critical to individual and institutional independence appointment terms removal terms salary terms and conditions are all delegated to the rules but the court rightly at least has struck the rules themselves down they have given the government liberty to reframe the rules together with conducting a judicial impact assessment of all tribunals that exist in this country the question of the certification of a bill as a money bill by the speaker and review of that has been sent to a larger bench for reconsideration this does not mean that it has doubted the correctness of the aadhar judgment where the court had found the aadhar act as a money bill but correctly said that the law in this regard has not been established so here's hoping that the seven judges establish the law once and for all moving on to another case from last week that is the applicability of the RTI act to the chief justice of india's office the question before the case was whether the office of the chief justice of india is a public authority under the RTI act and the contours under which information can be sought this was a long standing dispute and i'm delighted that the court finally held that the office of the cji is a public authority under the rti act however it said that there were several 
reasons as to why confidentiality was equally critical and privacy had to be protected and that balancing act would have to be carried out. However, this did not mean, as many of you have asked me, that this applies to disclosure of assets of judges. Judges' assets would now have to be disclosed and cannot seek shelter under the fact that the Chief Justice of India's office is not a public authority under the RTI Act. On a side note, a concurring judgment referred to my book on independence and accountability of the Indian higher judiciary, which was hugely gratifying and accepted my argument that independence and accountability are not opposed to each other. There is a room for legal academics in legal practice after all. Moving on to a third and rather more distressing case. This is the case of Vijay Prakash Singh versus Samir Gehlot, which was also decided by Chief Justice Gogoi in his last week. Many of you, particularly those familiar with the world of business, would know that Shivinder and Malvinder Singh owed Daichi a considerable amount of money pursuant to an arbitration award. The Supreme Court had ordered that status quo be maintained on both Shivinder and Malvinder's shareholding in Fortis Healthcare Limited. Some shares of Fortis Healthcare were pledged to India Bulls as collateral for loans taken by their companies. And the court found that in blatant violation of its orders, India Bulls had continued to transfer shares held by the two gentlemen in Fortis to another India Bulls group company despite knowing the court order. In light of this, the Supreme Court held the directors of India Bulls and the directors of the companies owned by Shivinder and Malvinder, including the two gentlemen themselves, guilty of contempt and gave them some time to purge the contempt and listed sentencing on this matter to early 2020. This shows that the reach of the Supreme Court is long and it's better that business houses, particularly industry leaders, do not play fast and loose with the court. After all, we are a rule of law country, though if you see actions like these, you sometimes tend to doubt it. Coming now to our High Court case for the week, and this case will be of particular interest to our law students who are listening in to this podcast. Guru Gobind Singh Indraprast University versus Nancy Sagar was a judgment of the Delhi High Court given by a division bench of Justices Hima Kohli and Asha Menon. The question in this case was whether students who do not meet the prescribed threshold of minimum attendance can be promoted to the next academic year only because they have secured pass marks. I hope there aren't too many of you who are listening to this who fall in this category, but if you do, the court hasn't given you much relief. The court said that the requirement of minimum attendance is an essential requirement because classroom teaching is an essential component of legal education. So for promotion to the next academic year, the student must fulfill the twin requirements of having a minimum attendance and a score of at least 50%. And the court said that 
an exceptional 5% margin that is bringing the attendance down to 70 may be afforded to a student in exceptional circumstances but not otherwise. So in face of such poor attendance, the court said that despite the fact that the two students in this case had personal difficulties as well as a moot court competition to attend, that no relief would be forthcoming. So if you're a law student, you better make sure that your attendance is up to the mark. So that's our roundup for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Our deep dive today is on faith, not law. It's often said that the Supreme Court is final, but not infallible. But increasingly, both litigants and judges themselves appear to be veering around to the view that the Supreme Court is neither final nor infallible. It's one thing for a dissatisfied litigant who feels hard done by to ask for a review of his judgment. But it's however an entirely different matter when the court itself appears to encourage such a practice. By neither accepting nor dismissing the review petition filed in the Shabrimala case, the Supreme Court seems to have done just that. So what exactly has it done? Recall the original Shabrimala judgment of the court in 2018. The court held that the worshippers of Ayappa were not a distinct religious denomination. Whether that's right or wrong, we'll come to it in a moment. But as a consequence of not being a distinct religious denomination, their belief that menstruating women should not be allowed to enter the temple could not claim constitutional protection as an essential religious practice. At the same time, the court held that all women had the fundamental right to freely practice and profess their religion, including by visiting the Shabrimala temple. Therefore, barring the entry of women between the ages of 10 and 50, which is a proxy for menstruation, into the Shabrimala temple was unconstitutional. I think there's much that's legally incorrect about this judgment. The court has used a formulaic understanding of what is a religious denomination to exclude the worshippers of Ayappa. This has the effect of denuding several religious groups, particularly the astoundingly diverse faiths within the larger umbrella of Hinduism, of their identity as a denomination in law. Within the Hindu faith, you don't necessarily have to have a name for your sect. You don't necessarily have to exclude others from entering your place of worship, but you could still be a denomination. The court has unfortunately failed to appreciate that. Further, it simplistically assumed that every person has a right to pray at a temple of their choice. While it may seem intuitively an argument that we can't say much about, but it is overbroad. What the constitution gives every person is the freedom to pray as one chooses. The moment the expression of such prayer is at a temple or a mosque or any other particular site of public worship, such expression is subject to the rules of that site. So a Hindu man can't say that he has a right to enter a Parsi fire temple. Likewise, a Christian woman cannot have a right to pray at a mosque. No such freedom exists in the constitution. When you are talking about a right to enter a temple, 
there is a conflict between the rights of an individual to pray and the rights of a group to determine for themselves the affairs of their religion. There is a necessary conflict. But the court in Shabrimala part 1 didn't think of it this way. In my view, that's an error of judgment. But critically, and this is some logic that perhaps frustrates non-lawyers, this is an error of judgment which is not an error of fact. This, in my view, is an error of interpretation. There is always a possibility in law that a different answer may be reached on equally sound reasoning. This is why it's well accepted that review of a judgment of a Supreme Court is not possible on the ground that a different view could have been taken. That's essentially an invitation to relitigate the dispute. The conceptual question at heart is this. How does the court balance the interests of justice in reaching a fair resolution with the interest of finality in putting an end to the dispute expeditiously? The review jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and the curative jurisdiction that can be exercised to review a judgment in review. Yes, you might be wondering why that's necessary, but that's an entirely different story. But review and curative jurisdictions of the court are narrow exceptions favoring justice over finality. They are not invitations to relitigate the dispute. It's thus inherent in their nature for their exercise to be severely circumscribed. Key grounds for review include an error that's apparent on the face of the record. That's easily visible for you and me to see, as well as the availability of new material subsequent to the judgment. This is why, despite the judgment in the Shabrimala case being arguably wrong, the court ought not to have given litigants another day in court. Hopefully the logic that we lawyers use is a bit clearer now. Legally, neither is the wrongness of the judgment an apparent error, nor are the subsequent law and order transgressions in Kerala new material that the court should consider in its judgment. The costs of such a review, while not visible, are tremendous. Creating a culture of litigation, where parties are incentivized to keep litigating rather than accepting their lot, building up judicial backlog that makes justice for the deserving litigant slow and expensive, and most critically, reducing the sanctity of a judgment of the Supreme Court. It's hugely detrimental for the majesty of the court if its judgments, right or wrong, are never considered fully final. The court, in fairness to it, has not accepted the review in its judgment two weeks back. It has kept it pending to be heard alongside three similar questions of women's entry into the Dargah, a Parsi woman praying at a fire temple after marrying a non-Parsi, and female genital mutilation of girl children in the Daudi Bohra community. Each of these cases raises complex questions of law and faith. And the court is right that the decision in the Shabrimala dispute will have a bearing on these cases. But this is precisely how the judicial system of precedence is meant to function. The court in a future case has to independently come to an assessment that the Shabrimala judgment is wrong and should not function as a precedent. Without doing so, 
to club these cases to evolve as the court says a judicial policy in this regard turns the system of precedent on its head laying down judicial policy in one case is alien to judicial decision making policy if it means anything in the legal system is the product of judges over decades applying the law dispassionately to the facts before them it might be a bit presumptuous for any one bench to see their task as laying down policy for all times to come by neither accepting nor dismissing the review and clubbing it with other questions before it the court has given credence to the narrative that the judgments of the court are never quite final that one can always take another chance i think justice nariman in dissent was right he said that the court should not have entertained the review and ended his judgment with these words let every person remember that the holy book is the constitution of india and it is with this book in hand that the citizens of india march together as a nation so we moved from several holy books to one holy book and that is a movement from faith to the law let's see how robust that movement has been Welcome to Tete Tete. My guest today is former law minister and senior advocate in the Supreme Court, Mr. Salman Khurshid. Thanks very much for joining us, Salman. Delighted, delighted to be here. So today we are discussing faith, not law. That Supreme Court's controversial decision to keep at bay the review in the Shabri Mala case. Now you followed questions of faith and law very closely. what do you make of the supreme court's initial judgment to say that every woman irrespective of whether they are menstruating or not has a right to pray at shabrimala well i think prima facie um, you cannot but agree with the supreme court um, because uh, there is a if you if you like an overarching presence of constitutional principles that the court described um, beyond that as constitutional morality uh, which would dictate somewhat of an outcome of the sort that court actually handed down to us but then there is another level there's another level and that level it may finally give you the same outcome but that level is about what role faith plays in constitutional interpretation so it isn't as though there is law and there is faith constitutional law includes faith although faith cannot be the final arbiter as it were so i think there's a little bit of a circular logic you start with law but law has faith as its part and then you get to faith and faith needs to give way to law but then you finally come back to law that has uh, uh, an ingredient of faith so where do you stop the the russian rule as it were of jurisprudence that's the big question so let's go into this circular logic that you've identified now the core of that really comes down to as the supreme court has held from shirurmat onwards as to whether a practice is an essential religious practice of a religion or not 
And if it is essential to a particular religion, then the Supreme Court will not interfere in it. So two questions. Do you think it's for the court to decide that something is an essential religious practice? And if it is, should that automatically be insulated? Right. Again, a very, very difficult question. Um, difficult on two levels. Uh, assuming that somebody has to decide what is essential religious practice. Should it be left to courts to do? Uh, but then we leave everything ultimately for the courts to decide. And why should they not decide something of this nature? Uh, some people might question and say, well, the courts are not equipped to decide this. And I, I think that's possibly a very weak argument. It's certainly correct that the court in deciding something of this nature have to work very hard. They have to understand religion. They have to delve deeper into what a particular religion is all about um, conceptually and psychologically and spiritually, as it were, and then finally decide if something is integral to it or not. Now, it's almost like the Constitution with a basic structure. Uh, what is basic structure is not definitively defined in any in, in, in any judgment. And there is no exhaustive list of basic structure. But if I might put it this way, when you see something as uh, basic, that's what basic structure mm -hmm. is. Um, is it instinct? Is it training? Is it intuition? Is it uh, analysis, etc.? I think all that will apply to religion as well. But having said that, let me just uh, put a question to myself. What exactly is religion is something that I believe the Supreme Court hasn't really defined. Um, some other jurisdictions elsewhere in the world have tried to attempt defining what religion is. Uh, Ronald Dawkin had written a, a whole book about religion without God. Most religions we assume are either God in one form or the other, etc. So there are so many difficult questions here that I would imagine finally being able to settle an issue of what is integral to religion is always remain going to be controversial. But who else is going to try to do it if not the court? That's right. And actually, when you were talking about the difficulties of definition, it reminded me of what Justice Potter Stewart said in Jacob Ellis versus Ohio, though in a very different and maybe profane context about pornography. I know it when I see it. Yeah. I think it's kind of the same with a lot of difficult concepts that we can't really put in terms of criteria. But I can't resist this asking you this question, given that it goes to a time where you were also very active, both politically as well as in the judicial fraternity, is to go back to the Shabano case, where the Supreme Court did get into the question of what is religious. Do you think that there are any lessons from that for the Supreme Court? Well, I think the Shabanu case, frankly, uh, doesn't go into the heart of religion. Uh, people might assume that that's what it does. It's, I think it's very much uh, at the peripheries. Uh, what the court had to decide is there, is there is a religious set of principles applied by a particular community. In those set of principles, they have a particular principle which says that post-divorce, man and woman should have no relationship, even transactional in terms of payment of, uh, of maintenance and so on. Uh, 
people assume that this transactional description means that you can rid yourself of any responsibility for the woman that you have married and who you've divorced, which is incorrect. There are alternative ways and means of ensuring that the woman gets the protection that she would get otherwise. So you get protection under Section 125 of the Criminal Procedure Code, or you get it through principles that apply to you uh, within the Islamic Code. Now, if there is two alternatives and a set of principles say that we should be allowed to follow our own or our own set of principles, then I would think that it's not so much about um, fundamental and integral part of religion. Um, rather, it's somewhat more peripheral. It's something more in the nature of political choice of how do you keep people satisfied that their preferences are being respected rather than you actually going to the heart of their understanding of religion. All right. That does bring me to a question, though, perhaps related. That is the question of autonomy of religious groups to define their practices. Now, one of the key questions in Sabrimala was that the worshippers of Ayappa could decide for themselves as to what rules would be followed for the visitors at Sabrimala. So the constitutional logic that they advanced was that like Article 25, which gives every person the freedom to profess, practice and propagate their own religion, Article 26 allows every religious denomination or a section thereof to manage its own affairs. So we have two constitutional rights at play here. What do you make of the argument from autonomy that is made by several religious groups? Ultimately, there is a very, very strong case made out for autonomy. But autonomy in these circumstances or autonomy in some different circumstances is a question that the court will always have, have to answer. Let, let's, let's examine a specific example. Uh, there are people who, uh, who strongly believe in ensuring that there is no cruelty to animals. Uh, there are people who believe in animal sacrifice and there are religions that actually uh, permit, if not encourage animal sacrifice or indeed even ordain uh, animal sacrifice. Now, how do you settle between two sets of people, one saying that you cannot be cruel to animals, and I would assume for their purposes, taking an animal's life amounts to cruelty, and another set saying, well, we are animals are made for our purpose, and we can sacrifice animals, or uh, we can put animals to death because it serves a particular purpose. It may be the purpose of of satisfying your appetite, or it may be a purpose of, of, of addressing your spiritual requirements, etc. Now, when there is a conflict and, 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 a, and a competition between these two sets of principles, how would you finally decide this? Would you, would you lean in favor of something that is endorsed by and validated by religion? Or would you lean in favor of something that you might be able to find uh, support from the constitution or general provisions of the constitution. I think it's always going to be a very hard case. And I think that inevitably the decisions that are made will have to be informed by practical reason of practical considerations. And therefore it will never be, it will never be pure religion. 
and I believe that it'll never be pure practical considerations. So if you were to take that example, that's a really interesting one. There is a religious view on one hand and there is a secular view that to prevent cruelty to animals on the other. Now, in this particular case, as do you think that there is any reason that the religious view should prevail on account of the fact that the constitution recognizes that the, there is a freedom for a religion to manage its own affairs? On the other hand, while the constitution does recognize a right to free speech, it doesn't recognize per se the fundamental right to life for animals. I mean, it's still fundamental right to life is for human beings, though not only Indian citizens, but all citizens irrespective of any country. So do you think that the fact that something is religious and the framers of the constitution did accord it some significance should hold greater sway in this example? Well, I, I think that it shouldn't be, it, it can't be just swept away on grounds that, that the constitution has another set of principles uh, that don't match it. Uh, there will have to be inroads made by religion into what would otherwise be pure set of, of constitutional principles because, as I said earlier, religion is part of constitutional principles. Mm -hmm. A lot of people assume that you're making an, an exception for religion or you're carving out an exceptional space for religion in what would otherwise be a lar larger landscape of non-religious, secular, as you described, secular principles. Now, I think that's the problem. The problem is to think that religion is an exception to other principles. I believe, as I understand the Constitution, religion is an intrinsic part of what has been described as constitutional morality. Uh, many of the judgments seem to suggest that constitutional morality stands apart from religion. So there's a religious morality and there's constitutional morality and the constitutional morality will always trump religious morality. But I think that's that's not the correct way of looking at it. But having said that, uh, what is what is finally a practical and a sensible and a, and, and a sustainable workable solution? And I think that lies in reading and understanding religion closely. There is a core of every religion and the core of every religion is very similar to that of other religions, etc. And I think that core is what you have to what you have to uh, understand and protect and preserve. And then there would be a peripheral parts of it, which I assume in the in on certain traditional and 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 standard formats of constitutional thinking that you could you could perhaps perhaps. Uh, dilute or perhaps restrict to a certain extent and that's done I mean that's done in every fundamental right uh, that uh, it's done in, in theory of language for instance that what you say the word you speak has a core meaning then it has many other meanings which are peripheral and it has meanings that would be perhaps diluted or adulterated meanings of the word and what you need to do is periodically go back to the original meaning the core meaning and strengthen that core meaning, and I think you'd have your answer. So I think that's interesting. I know our episode is titled Faith, Not Law, but I think what you're saying, Salman, is faith and law, because the two aren't really two distinct categories. But taking you back for a moment to and inviting you to wear your senior counsel hat uh, rather than your legal philosopher hat, uh, in the Sabri Mala case, 
the question before the court last week or in the judgment that's been given by Chief Justice Gogoi just before his retirement was whether to review the judgment or not. As Justices Nariman and Chandrachur in their dissent say, that review of a judgment has very clear circumscribed grounds. Is there any new material that has emerged subsequent to the judgment? Or was there an error apparent on the face of the record? Now, there were some clear grounds in this that are laid down for review of a judgment. So do you think, given that the grounds are very clear, should the Supreme Court have, a, it could have done three things. Should it have a, admitted the review, dismissed the review, or this curious midway that it's sort of tried to steer, which is to neither accept nor dismiss, but send the matter to a larger bench for consideration. If you could break that down for our listeners, particularly the law students who listen to this show. Well, I think if you're looking at the uh, uh, proposition about review, uh, then clearly, clearly uh, assume that the facts that we understand and we have gathered uh, uh, are, are admitted, uh, that on those facts, the review would not lie and it should have been dismissed. But I think that constitutional, constitutional jurisprudence requires and constitutional litigation requires a court to be sensitive to a lot many more matters than just simply very rigid, strict principles of law. I think we've seen this happen uh, more recently in the Ayodhya judgment, where you go about 95, 96% of the of the of the way to uh, to uh, deciding something on basis of pure legal principles, but the last three four percent of your decision takes into account without without clearly violating your legal principles, but um, accommodating, adjusting, and 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 perhaps fine tuning those legal principles in a way in which you have a social socially uh, sociologically um, acceptable practical solution, and if that's the case, that's the case. Uh, and I believe that in in constitutional matters, this is unavoidable. Uh, it's inevitable, and the courts just have to deal with it. Now, American courts often steer clear of many mm -hmm. such difficult decisions by saying this is uh, in the nature of a political question, and therefore we will not enter this uncharted field. But uh, without admitting it to be so, our constitutional courts do seem to stride into areas of uh, political questions and decide political questions. And how can they not decide political questions that range from reservations on grounds of, of uh, backwardness to uh, reservations on grounds of minority institutions and rights that people have that are different, seemingly uh, on the surface different from other rights that uh, that people that ordinary people have who are not who don't belong to a minority therefore i think there is a political element and this decision of sending these matters to a larger bench without actually deciding upon the review the larger bench to see that all similar matters that raise these kind of questions could then be resolved by a larger bench and possibly that resolution by that larger bench will then give it um, a straightforward answer to matters like the review in this case. I think that's what they've attempted to do. And of course, a cynical way of looking at it would be to say that they've just postponed it all to another generation of judges. 
So uh, let's yeah. kick the ball into into their into their court and said, well, you handle it. We are off. Goodbye. But you handle it, and let's mm. see how you how well you do it. Mm. Well, that's actually a, a cynical, but unfortunately, maybe sometimes perhaps true that this is the way in which things work out. But some of it's very interesting that you say that there's much more than law that goes on in our courts and particularly Supreme Courts, not just in India, but in every other jurisdiction. Uh, some of those non-legal elements that you adverted to or which could have weighed with the court was the fact that this a similar issue of this nature has arisen in the case of women's entry into dargahs uh, in the case of the Zoroastrian religion with women who have married non-Parsis, that's Parsi women who have married non-Parsis from entering a fire temple after their marriage, and also the controversial practice of female genital mutilation amongst the Daudi Boras. Do you think that the court trying to, as in Justice Gugoi's words, evolve a judicial policy in matters of this nature is the way forward. Or could we not have thought of these matters like in the regular course coming up one after the other as it does in any court of law and the court deciding on the basis of the facts before it? I think people have become uh, uh, a lot more um, persuasive, active, um, demanding, expecting, uh, and there is a kind of uh, uh, public feeling that issues that perhaps mean a lot to a segment or a section of population, but have very little meaning for the rest of the population, um, should uh, be issues on which that segment should fall in line. Uh, this is a trend that goes to the extreme of saying that why don't we have same law, irrespective of different laws violating a particular standard, different personal laws violating a particular standard that we could claim is a common standard or a preferred standard, um, just insisting that everybody should follow the same law uh, is today seemingly uh, something that is that is gaining acceptance ground and and uh, and being argued for vigorously. Now, is that necessarily a good thing? Is unity uh, assured only by uniformity, or is unity not in, not just assured by diversity, but actually preferred by way of diversity? These are two fundamental questions about our way of national life, which will have to be answered by people. It could be. Uh, to an extent answered by courts, it could to an extent be answered by institutions, but finally it'll have to be answered by the population and see what the population finally accepts. Now, to say that you should have unity, um, there is sometimes an assumption that unity means uh, unity of thinking and uniformity of conduct, that it should be that everyone behaves the way I behave. But it may well be that uniformity requires that I switch over to the way they behave. And I think that's the critical challenge that we face. And that's the critical challenge that the court faces as well. The only problem is, is the court willing to admit to the country or, or to people who watch the courts? Is it willing to admit that there is this problem and there are 
many ways of resolving it, but one of the ways of resolving it is to take on board political choice. Or should the court continue to pursue a fiction that we never make a political choice, mm-hmm. we actually make a choice that is the horse politics. Now, that's a big question, and I think uh, I think we need to answer this as other jurisdictions have periodically answered it. Scholars have, if not the judges themselves, as to what is what is the extent to which prevailing morality, prevailing political preferences, prevailing choice can influence what the judges do. Now, how Krishnaya and Bhagwati decided landlord-tenant cases and how landlord-tenant cases are decided today without a massive or dramatic change in the statutes that apply, but a very, very, very explicit, dramatic change in the attitudes that judges uh, today bring forward in their judgments uh, means that there is something beyond pure political, uh, pure analytical analysis mm. that is factored in and that changes and can have a far-reaching effect on both the, uh, the political economy as indeed about the choice that people make. I think that's beautifully put, that it's a fiction that judges don't make political choices. I think political choices abound within the law. And again, it's not... But I must add, because people misunderstand this, Mm -hmm. I must add, it's not party political choices. That's right. That's right. right. It's it's political in the best sense of the word, in the sense of Plato and Aristotle. Absolutely. One can certainly hope that it's not party political. Last question from me. I think ultimately the Shabrimala case and all cases relating to religion and law boil down to this, that is there a fundamental right to pray in a temple or a mosque of one's choice or does the fundamental right stop at saying that I have a right to pray to any god I want but not necessarily in a temple or mosque of my choice? Well, uh, put it differently. Put it differently. I can pray wherever I want. I can communicate with with God if there is such a way uh, of communication possible in any religion. But which should somebody be telling me that I can only do it in a particular way and can I do it only in a particular place or that I can do it only at a particular time? That's the big question. Can somebody be saying this to me? And what authority that somebody have? Uh, on what basis do they say it? How do you validate what that person says? How do you question it? How do you, who do you complain to? You can't wait to complain to God because it's going to be too late. Uh, therefore, uh, all we have is, is the courts of the land mm. to decide this for us. And the courts of the land will then obviously have to balance how much my religion, and first the religion must be understood, how much my religion is affected by my not being able to play, pray in a particular place, but being allowed to pray, and how much is somebody else's religion or understanding of religion affected by their being able to prevent me from praying where they don't want me to pray. I think, so it's like uh, I started with the circular logic, but it's like I'm submitting myself to the similar logic saying the answer would lie in looking at religion, looking at how much our understanding of religion is affected by that particular decision uh, and an honest and honest uh, assessment of what religion is and how it can be or, or would not be affected by what we are doing and saying, uh, I think 
is is where the answers lie. That's right. I think we've come in your words full circle as with this answer, uh, which is back right back to where we started. The ours is not going to be the last word on this issue, and because the Supreme Court has kept the review pending, neither is the Supreme Court's the last word at this point of time. Thank you very much, Salman, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure speaking. To Thank you. you. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Don't leave us just yet. It's time for our weekly legal quiz, Clatter, the quiz that's slightly tougher than Clat. But clearly it's not very tough for many of you out there because there were some really quick answers that we got for our quiz last time. Our winners are Akash Puttige and Mohan Gauda, who gave their answers almost at the same time. So I've exercised some discretion to share the thousand rupee voucher between Akash and Mohan. Thanks very much for writing in and hope for several more responses in next week's episode. Today's quiz and on to today's question. So this is another quote. I clearly am a fan of quotes, as you can make out, but I've made it a bit tougher. This is a quote within a quote where the author is quoting a very famous philosopher. Identify both the author as well as the philosopher who is being quoted. As Dash put it, all government, indeed every human benefit and enjoyment, every virtue and every prudent act is founded on compromise and barter. We balance inconveniences, we give and take, we remit some rights that we may enjoy others. And we choose rather to be happy citizens than subtle disputants. Unquote. The attempt to define individual liberties by abstract moral philosophy, though it is said to broaden our liberties, is actually likely to make them more vulnerable. Attempts to frame theories that remove from democratic control areas of life our nation's founders intended to place there can achieve power only if abstractions are regarded as legitimately able to displace the constitution's text and structure and the history that gives our legal rights life, rootedness and meaning. Our freedoms do not ultimately depend upon the pronouncements of judges sitting in a row." Unquote. Who is the author who has written this and the philosopher that he has quoted at the outset? It seemed to be particularly a relevant quote today, given that compromise and barter has been what has happened in Bombay today, which is the day we are recording our episode. So do write in to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in with your answers. Right answers win a thousand rupee gift voucher from Amazon. Thanks very much for tuning in. Our next episode is on Article 370. It's titled The Troubled Beginnings of Kashmir. Do join us. Till next week, adjourn. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in 
to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.